I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16 this morning. We're continuing our study of the life of Abram, or Abraham as he is about to come to be known. We're going to do a little Paul Harvey this morning. If you remember Paul Harvey uh, on the radio, he always did a segment in his radio uh, broadcast where he would tell a story and then come back later and say, and now you know the rest of the story. We're going to look at chapter 16 and then we're going to see the rest of the story. We're going to turn over to chapter 21 and and finish it out. But let's begin by reading chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Rui. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then flip over. We'll just read part of chapter 21, starting at verse 5 picks up the rest of the story. As you're flipping there, I'll just tell you one somewhat humorous thing. When Hagar uh, says, you are a God of seeing, the word uh, God of seeing in in Hebrew is Elroy. So Elroy, if you've ever ever heard the name of Elroy, I guess if you're a Jetsons fan, his boy Elroy. Uh, Elroy, that's God's name, the God who sees. I don't think that's what they meant in the Jetsons, by the way. But But verse 5, chapter 21. Abram Abram goes on and he has uh, a child by Sarah, uh, Isaac. And it tells us about that in the first four verses, but we'll pick it up at 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. 
The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the, the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come before you recognizing that we need the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, I need you to give me the words to say this morning, to faithfully uh, proclaim your word, to preach the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Please help me to do so. Lord, we pray that you would give us all help as we hear your word. Help us to truly hear it in our hearts and may it impact the way that we live our lives. Lord, we pray that the gospel would do, it, do its work, that your word would do its work in our hearts today by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I enjoy roller coasters. Uh, when we go to a, a park, I always enjoy uh, riding those things. And my favorite roller coaster that I've ever ridden was one called Oblivion. It's over in, in England. And the car consists of of two rows of eight. So you've got 16 people in one car, eight across. So it's a very wide track and wide roller coaster. So you begin slowly to climb a track, uh, and, and then you turn uh, about 45-degree incline there, and it brings you to a drop, a 180-foot drop at almost 90 degrees, and, and you drop right into a hole in the ground. And it's got smoke going across the hole, so you can't see where you're going. But right before you drop, uh, they let you hang there for a minute right over the edge. And it's very thrilling for me because I do not like heights at all. But that was uh, really a fun, thrilling roller coaster. And then, you, of course, they drop you down there, and you go down underground, and it zooms around up and down like roller coasters do. And you end up coming back out into the daylight uh, after a few seconds. But a very fun roller coaster, and, and maybe you're like me and you, you think roller coasters are fun. However, the roller coaster of life is not so fun sometimes. And, you know, we know that life can send you up and then down and then up again and then back down. And we're beginning to see as we flow through Abram's life here from Genesis 12 and, and to, through chapter 25 or so, we see Abram and Sarah's life going up and down and up and down. Great encounters with God, like in chapter 12 and chapter 15 that we just saw last week, uh, where they have an experience of the Lord. The Lord appears to them, gives them promises, but then we see that followed by great lapses in faith, like we saw with the episode where Abraham, uh, Abram went to Egypt and lied about uh, his relationship with Sarah and caused all kinds of difficulty there. And now we come to another low point after having the high point in chapter 15 of God appearing to Abram and 
promising and making a covenant with Abram. Here we come to chapter 16, and it is an absolute low point in Abram and Sarah's life. And we're still feeling the reverberations of that today. Well, I find this oddly comforting that the Bible does not paint an unrealistic picture of the heroes of the faith. You see that all throughout Scripture, whether it's Abram uh, or some of even the New Testament saints, like Peter, for example. They have their faults. Like me and you, or like you and I, Abram and Sarah struggled to remain faithful when the fulfillment of God's promises were delayed. Like us, they struggled to remain free of the worldly and cultural influences around them. And, you know, like us, they depended more on their own strength than on the Lord and his provision for them. So we can look at the life of Abram, even though he's the father of the faith, a great hero of the faith, we can see a lot of ourselves there. And there's much we can learn from Abram and Sarah's difficulties, especially here in chapter 16. Now, just to put this thing in context and, and understand a little bit more detail about what we've just read and what's going on here, uh, it has been 10 years since chapter 12 when God first appeared to Abram. Abram was living in Ur of the Chaldees. He worshipped uh, false gods, and God appeared to him and called him to himself and, and, and invited him to leave uh, his family, his home, and go to a new place that God would show him, that the true and living God would show him. And he would give him land, descendants, and would become a great nation. Well, he's in the land of Canaan, the promised land, but he doesn't own anything yet. But the real problem is the promise of a child. He, he hasn't got a child yet. He has all these promises and the land, but it's not going to become a nation without the child. The child is the linchpin of the whole thing. You've got to have a child to become a nation. You've got to have a child to to uh, have the inheritance passed down. So having a child is very key for Abram and Sarah. And it's also culturally important to Sarah. We need to understand this as well. A woman in those days who could not bear children was really a nobody. That woman was insignificant. She was a liability. And that seems harsh to our modern ears to hear such a thing. We would never think of treating someone like that or thinking that way of, about someone who was, uh, like Sarah, unable to have children. But we have to remember that in those days, they didn't have social security or hospitals or nursing homes or, or provisions for widows like we do now. You needed children to provide for your future. You needed someone to uh, provide for you in your old age, to look after you. Uh, you needed someone to work in the workplace because it was an agrarian culture. And the more children you had, the more hands you had to help out, the more that you would flourish. You needed uh, more children to protect you, especially sons. Uh, to, you know, they, were, they, they were wandering around and there were other people wandering around and anybody could come in and attack you. But if you had a lot of strapping young men who were your sons, they would defend you. So you see the importance of women in the society to bear children. Lots of strapping boys especially were honored in that culture. And if you're a woman who could not bear children, you were seen as someone who 
was not a positive for the community. You're a burden to the community and you, you were insignificant in the community and you would feel that way. So Sarah is desperate. And we see there in verse 2, Sarah had borne Abram no children. You can see her desperation when she says in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. But there was a way around that problem. The society of the day had a way to get out of that situation. And Sarah and Abraham uh, are ready to take matters into their own hands. They had this servant girl, Hagar. She was the property of Sarai. And if Abram had a child by her, the child would be the property of Sarai. If Abram has this child, well, it would be, it would be their child that would belong to them, and presto, they would have a ready-made heir. And this was a practice in those days, in that culture. It's not right. The Bible's not promoting this and saying it's a good thing to do. It's adulterous. It's polygamous because he has more than one wife now. And that's practiced in Scripture, but it's never condoned. And it never turns out well in Scripture. Anytime you see that happening, it's, it's always a nightmare. And it's not going to turn out well in this instance either. Abram goes along with the plan. And you notice the phrase at the end of verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now this is the same language that's used back in chapter 3 when God places the curses on the serpent and Eve and Adam. When God addresses Adam, it says, uh, Cursed are you because you listened, hearkened to the voice of your wife Eve. So when it says it in this manner here, uh, it's saying that Abram is culpable as well. Just like Abram was culpable. That's not a sexist statement now. Uh, it's Father's Day. We're, we're all, all about promoting the men and promoting the fathers. But uh, we're not saying that uh, it was all Eve's fault or it's all Sarah's fault. It was Adam's fault as well, even more so. And, and Abram's fault as well. Um, it, it's just that these women in these particular instances were saying, let's do something wrong. And the men went along with it. It could have very easily, and there are uh, uh, times when it was the opposite case. Well, this, this happens. And then matters devolve from there. Hagar, of course, conceives. Now she is significant when, within the household because she bears Abram's child. And she's a wife. And once she was a servant... Now she's uh, almost on equal terms in some sense. And whereas Sarah is trying to feel significant by getting a child, now she feels even more insignificant. Because even a slave girl, this maidservant, is looking down upon her as someone who can't produce. Look at verse 4. It says, When she saw that she had conceived, this is Hagar, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah is really upset about this. And she says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on we, me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now our English translation of what she says is sanitized here. 
the Hebrew communicates the rawness of her emotions when she says. So when she says, I gave my servant to your embrace, that's not actually what it says in Hebrew. Uh, it's, actually, uh, it's actually a more graphic euphemism for what went on there. And I don't need to say any more than that. I'll leave it there. Needless to say, she's upset. And the Hebrew really communicates that in the way that she expresses herself very graphically to Abram in that instance. Well, then Abram doesn't react well either. Look what he says. He callously says, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. In other words, giving her license to do whatever she wants to Hagar, even though Hagar's bearing his child. In other words, Abram is saying, She's a slave. Do whatever you want to her. Make her do what you want. And Sarah deals with her harshly, it says there. So harshly that Hagar runs away into the wilderness. So it must have been bad. The implication might be that she beat, physically beat Hagar. Well, all this misery and, and bad behavior has come upon Abram's house for one very simple reason. Because Abram and Sarai were trying to fulfill God's promises to them by their own power, through their own efforts. God has promised Abram and Sarah a son, even though Sarah cannot have children, even though they're both elderly. But instead of waiting on God, they try to go about gaining what God has promised through a different means, through their own clever plan, and through their own natural actions. When God does deliver on the promise in chapter 21, we see that it is a miracle birth. A barren woman has a child. It's, it's so miraculous. I mean, the, Isaac's name means laughter. I mean, it is just laughable. It's so crazy. And, they, and Sarah's saying, everybody's just going to laugh when they see this. It's so unheard of, so ridiculous that this has happened, and, and she means that in a good, positive way, just laughing out of sheer joy uh, at the impossibility that what seemed absolutely humanly impossible has happened to her and Abram. So Isaac is called laughter. A barren woman has a child by a man who's 100 years old. A supernatural work of God's Spirit, that's how Galatians 4 talks about it. A work of the Spirit. It's not a work of human ability. It's a birth that occurs where there is no life. This child, Isaac, is going to be the one who's the child of promise. Well, now, that's kind of a crazy old story. What has it got to do with us living here today? We're not polygamists yet in our culture. They're trying to promote it on TV, apparently. It's very different when we look at the way these people are behaving and what's going on here, and it's very difficult for us to see how this can apply. But what we have here, especially as we see how Paul writes about it in Galatians, and, and the writer of Hebrews refers to it, Paul in Romans refers to it, Romans 9, Hebrews 11, uh, what we have here is a picture of the way people try to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises and the way God actually fulfills his promises. Now, the promises that we're talking about here today are the promise of the gospel, 
the promises of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what do we mean by salvation? Now, salvation means that, uh, you know, we uh, as human beings are all sinners. We inherited it from Adam. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he lived there with Eve and everything was perfect. Sin had not entered the world. Uh, They had been blessed by God living there. Everything was great beyond our imagination. But they, like Abram and Sarah, took things into their own hands and decided to do what God had forbidden them to do. And sin entered the world. And all human beings descended from Adam have a sin nature. And our sin nature causes us to sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners already. That came first, being a sinner. We're born sinners. So, we've got a problem. Sin causes us a division with God. God had to say, say to Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve, get out of the garden. They placed a, a, a cherubim at the gate with a flaming torch to keep them out. They, the fellowship with God that they enjoyed in the garden was broken. And they were subject to God's judgment and wrath. So they needed somebody to rescue them. And right at the very beginning, Genesis 3, God promises that he would send a redeemer. And that's what he's done. He's sent Jesus Christ into the world to deal with our sin problem. And so Jesus pays the penalty for our sins on the cross. He fulfills the righteousness, the righteous requirement of God's law by living a perfect life. And he does that as our substitute. And that is applied to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating us, bringing life where there's death, uh, adopting us into God's family, making us children of God, uh, justifying us before God, making us right with God, and then continuing to, throughout our lives, sanctify us, to make us more holy until one day we will be glorified. Sin will be no more. That is the sum total of salvation. It's not just, you know, yesterday I was at a family reunion and uh, one of my relatives was saying that he had gotten saved. And we talked that way. You know, it was, a, it was his moment of conversion. Something had changed in his life. But that's just one part, actually, of salvation. It's, it's appropriate to talk about it that way because he's experiencing salvation at his conversion. He repented. He turned to the Lord in faith. But salvation is the whole sum total of everything that God's doing for us and will do for us. And the fulfillment of all those promises come when we're glorified. We will enjoy the full salvation of God. So we can talk about it in past, present, and future terms. We can say we have been saved because it's so secure. We can say we are being saved because God is continuing to do a work in us. He's going to work in us until he finishes the work. We will be saved one day. We will enjoy the fullness of that salvation. So salvation is all those spiritual blessings that come to us through God to help us to, to make us his children, to bring us into relationship with him like Adam enjoyed in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. So God wants to have us as his people. He wants to have a family. And so he sends Christ to save us. That's the promise of salvation. But it does not come to us through our own efforts. And this is my 
one of my two very easy, quick points. Simple point, number one, you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. How do you respond to the question, are you a Christian? If your response is one similar to this, well, I'm trying to be, then you don't understand what a Christian is. Because a Christian is not someone who earns their salvation by their works. It's not someone who depends on a strict adherence to some rules in order to earn God's favor. You cannot do that. That's what Abram and Sarah were doing. They were trying to bring about God's promises through their own power. We're gonna, God's promised us something. We're going to make it happen through our own effort. And that's what they did. And it was a disaster. And anybody who's relying upon their own good works to save them is headed for disaster, just like the whole Ishmael-Hagar thing. It's not going to work. It's not going to end up well for you. It has to be a supernatural work of God. And that's what God does to save people. By grace, through faith. Faith is the instrument through which we appropriate the salvation. We, we see God has made promises to save those who call upon his name, to save people through what Christ has done. So we rely upon that promise. Uh, God's work in our lives to save us, not our own works. We cannot make it happen. We cannot save ourselves. Abram and Sarah were depending on their own strength, their own work to bring about God's promises. You cannot bring about God's promise of salvation by doing, your, by doing good, by working. It has to come through Christ, through trusting in Christ's work, through trusting in Him applying it to you just by putting your faith in Him, turning from your sin and resting in His finished work for yourselves. It always ends in disaster. Isaac was a supernatural birth. We need a supernatural new birth. It's called regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes in and we're spiritually dead. We're dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2 tells us. And the Spirit comes and awakens us, brings us to life so that we can respond and trust in Him. We need that work. So we cannot save ourselves. So if you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian because I'm, I do pretty well. You know, when I die, my, my goods are going to outweigh my bads. Well, you're going to be in for a shock because that's not how a person is saved. It's by grace. It's by a free gift of God. It's by His work in our lives. It's by what Christ has done in His life and His death. He is the reason that you can be saved. Not His work, not your work. Now, the second point I want to make very briefly is that first, you cannot save yourselves. Secondly, you did not and you are not saving yourself. You cannot save yourself. That's mostly for people who may think they're Christians, but they're really not. But now for us who are Christians, we need to be reminded, you did not save yourself and you are not saving yourself through your good works. That's what Paul's writing to the Galatians. Because they are back, you know, they become Christians uh, they had, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit had done a work in their lives and converted them. Some false teachers came in and said, no, no, you've got to start keeping the law. You've got you to rely on your works. And Paul's going, 
No, what are you thinking? This is not the way. It's not through your works. It's through grace. It's through what Christ has done, not what you do. And then he uh, looks back to this story of Hagar, Ishmael, uh, uh, Sarah, and Isaac and says, look, we've got a child of the flesh and a child of promise. You're children of promise. You're descended from Isaac. Uh, This is what saves you, not physical descent, but resting in God's promise, not in your ability to keep God's law, not in your ability to do what's right. And see, we like to keep God's law and to feel like God owes us. It makes us feel significant. And you see that with Sarah. You know, she wanted it so bad to have strength and ability to have uh, that promise in her own flesh. She was probably tired of feeling insignificant and like the culture was running over her. She's taking charge and she's saying, God is not delivering on his end of the deal, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And I tell you, just like Abram and Sarah on the roller coaster, we can do the same thing. We know we're saved by grace through faith, We've had an experience of that salvation, but like the Galatians, we can fall into becoming legalists and thinking that, our, that God, uh, our, our, God's favor comes through our ability to keep the law or not keep the law. Let me tell you, we're going to fall short. You know, yes, we do want to keep the law. This is not an antinomian sermon. This is not a sermon against keeping God's law. As Christians, we respond to the grace that we've enjoyed. Uh, we do enjoy by responding with obedience. It's what theologians call the third use of the law. It shows Christians how they can live a life that's pleasing to God. It's not the grounds of our salvation. It's the means through which we show gratitude and love to God. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, as, as it says in 1 John. So the law is a way for us to, to uh, show our love and gratitude to the Lord. It's not a means of salvation. Back to the first point. You cannot earn God's favor through your works. You show your gratitude for salvation by keeping the law. That's the purpose of the law, not to earn salvation. Think think of it this way. The Exodus. Most everybody knows that story. Children of Israel, the descendants of Abram, end up in Egypt. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. They're in a miserable situation. And God comes and he does something miraculous through Moses. And he rescues them from bondage, from slavery, from the torture and difficulty and the miserable life they had. And if they crossed that Red Sea, that's a picture of salvation, they crossed over to a new life. And then God gives them the law. Then you have Mount Sinai. It's after salvation that they're given the law. Same is true for Christians. They, didn't, they weren't in Egypt going, we better start keeping the law so God will deliver us from Egypt. No, God broke in and he intervened, delivered them in a supernatural way, and then he gave them the law so that they could please him and give him honor and glory and thanks with their lives. And of course, just like them, like us, we fail to keep God's law. But God is always merciful, always forgiving, 
It's always by grace. It's never through our works. The Galatians were forgetting that. Paul's reminding of, of that and pointing back to the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael. And see, the promise the, of, of, of Isaac he also uh, was the one through whom the inheritance came. You know, Sarah said, you know, get Hagar out of here in chapter 21, and God says that's okay because the younger son, Isaac, uh, the supernatural son, Isaac, he's the one that's going to inherit. And it's those who are supernaturally born again who will inherit eternal life, who will inherit all the blessings and promises of God. For those who are trying to keep the law, the people who are like Ishmael, the people who are trying to earn it on their own, yeah, they may enjoy some good things just by being good moral people. They may feel good about themselves, but those things are only going to be for this earth. They're not eternal blessings. They're not a, it's not an eternal life. Remember the gospel promises. Remember the salvation by grace through faith. Let's pray together.